our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. My goal in this deposition was to be truthful, but not particularly helpful. Welcome to Unspun, the podcast that makes you better at finding the truth. The way people get news is changing. It used to be that there were many reporters who would research stories and write articles, but now politicians and famous people share information directly with you on social media and the internet. That means you find out things fast, but it's up to you to make sure the information's actually accurate. And newsmakers don't always do their part. The temptation to manipulate information is strong. They bend the truth to deceive so that they can avoid accountability, so that they can advance their agendas. When you recognize these agendas, you can sometimes find out what's real. And we're at a crossroads where anyone can share anything online. So it's important to sharpen your critical thinking skills. Finding that deception before it goes viral is pretty much a survival skill now. And we're going to do it together. Let's get unspun. Hello, and welcome to Unspun for this week. Before we get started, I want to ask you for a favor. If you'd enjoyed the podcast so far, I would really appreciate it if you would go to whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, whether that's Apple Music or Spotify or Podcast Addict or whatever, and just leave me a quick rating. I've been doing this for a little over 10 episodes now, and I could really use some feedback on how I'm doing. And speaking of feedback, if you are at all interested in helping me to workshop some new material for public sessions that I do on media literacy, I would love to have you join me for a Zoom call where we're going to do that. You can find the details in my Substack, which is the Unspun Podcast at Substack.com. There you can find a link to a form where you can sign up, and I'm going to be doing these sessions in about two weeks from now. So I would love to have you join me and help me make these sessions the very best they can be. Okay, let's get Unspun. Do you wonder sometimes why you keep hearing about certain kinds of stories in the news while other topics get ignored? Well, a big part of it comes down to news values the specific elements that make a story seem more important, interesting, or urgent. News values help outlets pick which stories to cover at all. Like, a fender bender probably won't make headlines, but a giant pileup on the highway? That's going to get some attention, especially for online video or TV. In fact, in TV journalism, they have a saying, if it bleeds, it leads. That means that a story that has the most exciting video is often the one that's going to lead off the newscast and will show in the promotions leading up to it, and that kind of thing. And then, for the stuff that does get reported, news values also impact the way the journalist reports it and edits it. So, for example, if something is an ongoing issue, like a bad storm or someone barricaded in their house facing off with police, you can expect breaking news banners and constant updates on social media. On the other hand, last night's city council meeting can wait a few hours until the next issue or newscast. So let's talk about some important news values. First, we've got conflict. Conflict grabs attention because we want resolution to problems. You know, think about Real Housewives. It would be a lot less exciting without the fights. Or, honestly, hockey or basketball. You know, those fouls add to the game's excitement. And a bench-clearing brawl is definitely going to be in the highlight reel. But a political debate, a legal battle, or even communities facing natural disaster. These situations create tension, and so they tend to be foregrounded in news, both in the choices that journalists make for what they're going to cover, and in the elements that they pull out of those stories. That conflict news value helps explain why we cover elections the way that we do. It's probably in the best interest of voters for election coverage to focus on how different candidates might actually govern, you know, what their policy positions are. But the story that we get is usually about strategy or about candidates insulting each other. 
And that's because people are drawn to that conflict news value, even if it's not necessarily the best thing for them. We're getting into awards season, and so that brings up the issue of prominence. Now, I'm going to say some of you probably know the score of that championship game where the Chiefs won that trip to the Super Bowl. How many points they won by. But I would also bet that more of you know that Taylor Swift attended that game. That's because she's prominent. Prominence draws focus because famous figures and impactful events have wider effects. Celebrities on the red carpet or politicians giving speeches or local heroes in the headlines, we already recognize those names and faces. And more than that, people can develop what we call a parasocial relationship with them. That means that you don't actually interact with them, but you feel like you do. So if someone hits my non-famous neighbor in the face with a milkshake, it's probably not news. But if someone hits Donald Trump in the face with a milkshake, that would probably be in the news for weeks, maybe months. And so stories will get chosen and written to highlight the prominence. Speaking of milkshakes, Joe Biden was in my area recently, and he stopped at a local fast food chain and bought himself and the governor milkshakes. How do I know about this? I know about it because it was on the news. I don't know about anybody else who got a milkshake there any time in the last month, because they're not as prominent. Okay, up next is proximity. Proximity refers to how closely a story affects its audience. And I like to think of there being two kinds of proximity, geographic proximity and psychographic proximity. Geographic proximity is things that are literally physically happening near you. So for example, a series of robberies in my neighborhood certainly gets my attention. A series of robberies in a city 100 miles from my house probably gets less attention, and a series of robberies in a city in another part of the country gets my attention even less. A series of robberies in a city across the world probably not even going to show up in my news. So that's geographic proximity. Psychographic proximity is things that are happening in a life situation that the audience can relate to. So for example, the audience of a high school newspaper is probably going to be more interested in a gun being found on a high school campus in a school across the country than the audience of a Facebook group for senior citizens. The people at the high school, they feel some empathy, they feel some potential threat to themselves from something that has happened geographically far away. That story is more likely to get published in the high school newspaper because it's more likely to get talked about locally. So whether it's geographic or psychographic, more proximity makes stories personally relevant. And our final news value for this episode is going to be a really basic one, which is timeliness. Journalists think of sort of three times of stories. Breaking news stories are ones that are ongoing at the time. Timely stories, or stories that matter now, could be something like a protest planned for later in the week or a rocket that's about to launch. And then there are what they call evergreen stories. An evergreen story could run at any time, or, you know, in a giant block of time. So a feature story about how to meal plan could be evergreen. I could run it today. I could run it tomorrow. I could run it next week. I could run it next year. It wouldn't really change the interest of that story. A story about Stanley Cups could be an evergreen story, if it's just about the trend. If it was a story about people freaking out, you know, believing that they're getting blood poisoning from Stanley Cups, which I don't think there's actually any evidence for, would be timely. If Stanley's holding a press conference about the freaking out, that could be breaking. And speaking of breaking, I feel like cable networks have kind of broken the breaking label. A lot of times when you're watching cable 24-hour news, they're using a breaking banner on the screen just to describe a story they're working on right now or even just still talking about, and it's an old story. It's not really the same way that breaking is understood in terms of news values. 
Timeliness prioritizes new information. You know, breaking news alerts seem more urgent than historical documentaries because people want the scoop on developing events. So journalists will use these news values to decide what they're going to cover, how they're going to cover it, and the order in which they give the information to you. And they do this because these elements drive attention, and most news outlets get paid by attracting attention that they then sell to advertisers. A story that has multiple news values, you know, like a prominent official involved in a recent nearby conflict, that's often the most compelling because we instinctively focus on those complex, unresolved situations close to home. I'm a professor, so let's take a quiz. I'm going to read you some headlines and see if you can tell the news value. Here's the first one. Local teacher strike enters third week. The primary news value in that one is that news value of proximity because it directly affects the local community. Let's try another one. Pop star Ariana Grande announces surprise wedding. That one has the news value of prominence because Ariana Grande is a highly famous celebrity. Wildfires rage out of control, forcing evacuations. That primary news value would be conflict because it's a struggle between the communities who are having to evacuate and those destructive natural forces. President signs new healthcare legislation into law. That one is probably mostly the news value of prominence. It could be timeliness as well because the president is a highly prominent public figure. Uh, the fact that the law is new could matter. It would depend on if the law was taking effect right away or not. Actor Tom Cruise files for divorce. That headline has the news value of prominence because Tom Cruise is a famous celebrity. Local hospital nurses go on strike for higher wages. That one has the news value of proximity because it directly impacts the local community. And here's the last one. Candidates clash over immigration in heated debate. That headline has the news value of conflict because it describes opposing parties, you know, in an intense dispute. Okay, I need to take a quick break, but when I come back, we'll talk about a common trick newsmakers use to try to get you to agree with them. Welcome back. I have a question for you. Are you a maggot? Are you a demon rat? Are there only two choices? If you read some kinds of social media, you might think so. I believe that things are rarely just two choices, and forcing its choice can be its own logical fallacy, and it's called the false choice fallacy. It limits options to two when more exist, and leaders will do this to encourage people to choose what the leader wants by making that choice seem like the only reasonable one. For example, support this wall or you don't care about security. There are other options, right? There could be more agents, drones, addressing the causes of migration from the places people migrate from. Or we have to cut this program or we have to raise taxes massively. This pretends that you couldn't have modest cuts and modest increases, right? It doesn't have to be necessarily that program. All right. Let's listen to some examples of newsmakers using either or language for this week's warm up. Can can we agree that either President Biden's administration believes in open borders or the person that he has put in charge of making immigration policy is not 
qualified to manage a food truck. In this clip, U.S. Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana is questioning witnesses about immigration and farming, and he offers a choice. Here it is. Either Joe Biden's administration believes in open borders, or the Homeland Security Secretary is not qualified to run a food truck. Now, I will grant you that it sounds like Kennedy is just trying to be inflammatory, but it's also a false comparison. There's a whole lot of range between being able to run a food truck and deliberately wanting all the borders to be open. And this is actually a really common straw man that shows up when immigration matters appear in Congress. Let's listen to another. Either we ask the wealthiest Americans to pay their fair share in taxes, or we're going to have to ask seniors to pay more for Medicare. We can't afford to do both. Either we gut education and medical research, or we've got to reform the tax code so that the most profitable cor corporations have to give up loop, uh, tax loopholes that other companies don't get. We can't afford to do both. This is not class warfare. It's mad. This is President Obama talking about the federal deficit. And this one is a little bit trickier to understand because the devil really does live in the details. He gives a couple of examples of things where you have a choice of either increasing revenue or cutting spending. But he's picking things that are going to be hot button issues for voters. It's not necessarily true that the best way to raise revenue is by removing corporate loopholes. And it's also not true that the best way to decrease spending is necessarily to go after seniors. There would be lots of other choices. And this kind of oversimplification, this forced choice, is not really fair. Let's listen to one more. Let me just say it this way. Either we have the government forcing us and telling us what we have to do, where we have to do it, and how much we have to pay for it, or we put ourselves in charge. We as consumers, as patients, do we want to be the ones driving the healthcare system? Do we want to be the ones where all the providers, insurance companies, nurses, doctors, hospitals, nursing homes compete against each other for our business based on price, based on quality, based on outcomes. That's freedom. This is Paul Ryan, and he was the House Speaker at the time, and he's talking about repealing the Affordable Care Act. And he says there's a choice. Either the government dictates every single aspect of your health care, or patients are in charge of every single aspect of their health care. This is probably a false choice. I know that today Obamacare does exist, and yet I do not actually have anyone from the government calling me up and telling me what time I can go to the doctor. Insurance companies are allowed to do that, but they were allowed to do that before Obamacare too. All right, I need to take another quick break, but when I come back, I'm going to be talking with author Terry Canefield about her new book on disinformation. Welcome back. I'm so happy to have Terry Canefield here with me this week. Terry is an award-winning author, as well as a former appellate defense attorney. She's written more than a dozen books, scores of articles, and she has an active social media presence where she educates on history and the law. But I invited her here today to talk about her really terrific upcoming new book, which is called Firehose of Falsehood. This book takes you through the whole origin and functioning of disinformation, and it does it in a really unique way in the form of a graphic novel. So, Terry Canefield, welcome to Unspun. Thank you. Oh, Delighted I wanted to, be here. to first say I deeply, deeply enjoyed your book. I thought that the uh, interplay of the ideas and the pictures worked really, really well, the graphic novel format, and just the way that you took the whole historical pro 
approach going through. And so speaking of history, I'd love it if you could tell me a little bit about the history of the book itself, sort of what inspired you to tackle this subject and why you went with the graphic novel format. Well, I actually had no intention of writing a book about disinformation. I became interested in the subject several years ago, and I started publishing short pieces in various mainstream outlets. So for example, I had a piece in Slate Magazine about why Trump supporters believe all of his lies. I wrote a piece for the Washington Post about Trump's rhetoric. Then an editor at First Second Books at Macmillan approached me and asked me to write the text. I said, okay. Until that point, my only real connection to graphic novels was when my son was about 10, and I believe I single-handedly kept a graphic novel bookstore in business in San Francisco. Of course, what, what makes a graphic novel different is that the illustrator is hugely important, and the illustrator on this book was phenomenal. He was careful, he did meticulous research, and he really understood how to bring the text to life. I was very impressed with everything he did. Yeah, I was too. Um, I thought the visuals were really strong and wonderful in that way. Um, one of the things that I thought was especially interesting was your approach to the whole idea because you sort of developed it through sort of presenting important moments in history. And so what I'm curious about is why did you think that the historical approach was sort of important to understand the moment that we're in today? Well, history offers perspectives and gives us a way of understanding the present. When Donald Trump first came to office, most people had no way of understanding what he was about, why he was so outrageous, and why his followers were so devoted. And the more outrageous and shocking his behavior, the more outrageous his lies, the more his followers like him. And in fact, that's still happening. People expected, for example, criminal indictments to crater his support, but the opposite happened. Criminal indictments boosted his support. Now, that's because his appeal to his supporters is that he is the way he lies and cheats. And this is counterintuitive to people who are more inclined toward a democratic outlook, rule of law way of thinking. So I thought a lot of people, a lot of my readers, seem fairly naive about this. Um, people still think, by the way, that exposing Trump's crimes will crater his support. Um, in fact, it's the way he lies, the way he breaks rules, which is why they like him. And I thought that because a lot of people felt like he sort of came out of nowhere and nothing like this had ever happened before, that um, I thought some a little bit of history could help people understand what was happening. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, they always say, if you don't study history, you're doomed to repeat it. Um, and I feel like people who've kind of followed the historical approach have said, oh, yeah, that's exactly what's happening right now. Um, pretty early on in the book, you introduced an idea that I thought was um, maybe interesting for my listeners, which is the idea of a concealed war. So can you please explain what that is? What does it mean for a war to be concealed? The concept of concealed war, believe it or not, dates all the way back to the Mauryan Empire. The idea is that there are two kinds of wars, an open war and a concealed or silent war. An open war is when two armies meet on the battlefield. Lines are drawn. Everybody knows there's a war. A concealed war is what today we might call a disinformation campaign. So the goal is to turn the people of the enemy country against their leaders so that the people of the country attack their own leaders and take steps to crumble their own government. It's a whole lot easier 
it's a whole lot easier to launch a, a sort of a secret um, stealth disinformation campaign and let the citizens of your enemy country do it for you. So the echo actually was, um, the, the, the idea of a concealed war was actually echoed by Hitler's henchmen, and who said that, actually Goebbels said there was two ways to make a revolution. He said you can either blast your enemy with machine guns until they acknowledge that you're superior, or instead of holding them to machine guns, you can blast them with disinformation. Propaganda is what they called it. They called it propaganda. So we saw it again during the Cold War between Russia and the United States. Um, at that point, it was called active measures. And an example of that would be, um, there's some really great examples. So during the Cold War, a guy named Ladislav Bittman, who was a recent college graduate in the Czech Republic with, um, do you know who he is? With a, um, he has degrees in journalism and history. So he joined the Czech intelligence service and he did what he called dirty tricks. So he and his colleagues, for example, published a, in, in um, an Eastern Bloc newspaper, they published a fake letter that was allegedly written by American businessman Rockefeller to President Dwight Eisenhower. And this fake letter was outlining a plan to use American military to manipulate foreign countries. So this fake story was picked up by Soviet bloc newspapers and radio stations. Then Western newspapers ran the story as if it was true, giving it instant credibility. So a lot of Americans believed it and started turning against their own government. And um, actually the campaign was so successful, that particular campaign was so successful that Soviet disinformation operators followed up with a forged document that appeared to be written from Secretary of State Dulles to President Eisenhower, reveal, revealing, quote, the real hidden objective American foreign policy in the Middle East. According to this made up letter, the policy was to suppress Arab national independence and establish the United States as the sort of colonial heir to France and Britain and with the goal of seizing medieval, um, midi uh, Middle Eastern oil. So anyway, there's some examples about how this has been used in the past. Yeah, interesting. And um, you went on to talk about the story of uh, the Russian Empress Catherine the Great. And uh, one of the things I thought that was super interesting in that part was the idea of people actually lying to the leader, right? Often when we think about, you know, authoritarians and fascists, we think about the leader lying to the people. Um, but you introduced the idea of people lying to the leader. Do you think that some of the information problems that we're having today in the United States are kind of related to that, to people lying to people in power? Oh, certainly. The thing to understand about autocracy is that it is based on lies. The autocrat tells lies. Sometimes they get their ideas from supporters. So when I say it means based on lies, and one lie propping up a strong man is, I can fix it. I alone can fix it. Um, a lie sort of propping up the, the um, plantation system was that um, whites are superior and blacks are fit for labor. So these kinds of lies is what props up the system. And democracy, in contrast, requires truth. And so, um, so the, the autocrat tells lies, but sometimes they get these ideas from their own supporters. And just to take one notable example, it was reported that on election night, November 2020, a reportedly drunken Rudy Giuliani urged Donald Trump to say, he said, just say we won, even as it became clear that they were losing. So 
Trump picked that up. It was a good idea. So people lie to the leader to flatter the leader, but people also lie to the leader because they're all playing the same game, which is coming up with lies that will advance our agenda. And that particular lie clearly was told to advance the agenda. You talked about the idea of you know democracies requiring truth. And um, another one of the examples that you gave in the book was uh, in the chapter around slavery. And so you talked about how experts were sort of brought in to um, basically dehumanize black people, right, to provide scientific findings that dehumanized black people. And, you know, that's also seemed kind of very relevant during COVID in particular, that they were sometimes using people who looked like they were experts to provide bad information. Here's what I wonder. In the modern context that we have, so, you know, in COVID or when we're talking about immigration or, you know, other issues where we're kind of bringing in these experts, is it that the experts are actually people who are just lying or is it something about the nature of expertise itself that leads to their statements kind of being easy to misuse? Well, I think both happens. Um, As far as the racism lie, it's actually still happening. Um, earlier, I looked up, um, there's a thing called, believe it or not, it's called scientific racism. Now, earlier today, I looked it up. The Harvard Library has a resource page for confronting those theories. And basically, what the theories do is they take fake scientific methods to prove that white people are superior. Um, Actually, a sort of a theme that you see through um, autocratic movements is that what um, autocrats do is they use the values of democracy to upend democracy. So what some of these people do, for example, putting forward the idea of the scientific racism, is they demand a platform at the university. Now, this is if they're denied a platform, if the university says, go away, take that trash away, then they say, what a bunch of hypocrites. Universities claim to be open to new ideas, but in fact, they're closed-minded. And like any autocrat, they shut down any opinion that doesn't fit their agenda. Notice how this is a win-win for the people peddling these lies. If they're given a platform, they can showcase their lies, and the lies have instant credibility because the university is showcasing them. But if they're denied a platform, they call the academics hypocritical. That's just another example of how they use these, um, the democratic value of sort of scientific inquiry and um, talking about different ideas and having dissent and debate. Well, when you put a lie into that, deliberately, then you're upending the whole process. Yeah, this is interesting. You know, and I think they don't just do it with academics. You can see that happening with uh, media, for example, not covering certain topics or social media platforms, deplatforming certain people, those kind of things. You see those same kind of, oh, well, they're such hypocrites sort of things. So I think that's really interesting. And, you know, we find ourselves in the era now of, you know, calling things fake news, uh, kind of the old Nazi Lügenpresse idea coming back again for us. Um, what does history teach us about that effort to remove the respectability from the press? Well, history teaches us that autocratic regimes always shut down the press or seek to discredit the press. Now, all, if you go all the way back to the, the British monarchy, you had laws against sedition, which meant laws against um, criticizing the government. So. The, the press was always controlled, um, but once the autocratic um, leaders came to, came to power in previously democratic regimes where there were, was an open press, then what they had to do was either control it or discredit it. 
one of the difficulties right now is that we are also in an information disruption, which by itself is undermining the press. So for example, news used to be funded by advertisements on TV or subscriptions to newspapers that were delivered to your door. Now we have this 24 hour cable and um, internet news cycle and people don't want to pay for subscriptions. So news outlets are relying on clicks and sensational headlines often generate more clicks. So two things right now are undermining the reliability of the press. The thing about this information disruption is it harkens back to um, the invention of the printing press, which I also talked about in my book, because a new technology like the printing press or the internet will suddenly flood the waves with new information that people are not equipped to handle or evaluate. So there are two things going on. There's first off the literal calling of the press to fake news whenever it, there's something that people don't like, but then there's also the fact that the media itself is in a disruption. Hmm, interesting. Um, yeah, and I feel like um, as we're going kind of through the functional displacement of journalism, right, as they're trying to figure out their funding model, since the old one isn't working anymore, we kind of get into the situation where, you know, bad information is free and uh, good information costs money and kind of gets more expensive as fewer people seek it out. Um, do you think that the effort to devalue the media and maybe even to devalue other institutions. Do you see that on both the left and the right, or do you see it on one side more than the other? I think it's different on the left and the right. Um, I think that um, on the left, when people are criticizing the media, they're talking about what's happening as a result of the disruption. They're criticizing um, reputable newspapers who are resorting to sensational both sidesism. And so what some people on the left are doing with sort of attacking the newspaper is they're responding to the sort of crisis that the newspapers are in. Um, the solution would be for everybody to go subscribe to good journalism, and then that would pump a whole bunch of money into the good journalism, but um, that isn't really what's happening. So I, I see it a little bit different um, on both sides. I, I did a, um, as far as conspiracy theories on both sides, um, they, are, they also look a little different on the left. Um, I think that conspiracy theories and misinformation on the left happens more from how complex our legal system has become and people not understanding how to evaluate the authorities they're seeing on the internet. And so I think that, and it's serious, it's a serious problem because anytime large segments of the population let go of factuality or truth, you have a problem. Um, so I think on the right, meaning by the right, I mean the far right wing that is right now elevating Putin, Trump, or the, the autocrats around the world um, are deliberately seeking to put forward conspiracy theories and lies. Conspiracy theories and lies take, take a different, have different causes, I think, on the left. Hmm. That's, that's super interesting. But... Um... I think it's easy sometimes for people to think, well, whatever perspective I agree with, they're doing everything right and the other side is doing everything wrong. And it's going to, especially with filter bu bubbles, it's easy to have blinders on, you know, to right. see the log in your own eye, I guess. Um, so I want to move on and kind of talk about implications a little bit. Um, 
I thought it was interesting that you called your book Firehose of Falsehoods, because I think that's referring to the uh, Rand Corporation study with that name that came out, I think, in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so I'm wondering if the, uh, you know, the Rand Corporation suggested giving the public raincoats, right, that that was the best way to deal with that fire hose of bad information. Um, and I think, you know, your book is an effort to do that. And this podcast is an effort to do that and all of those kinds of things. But is is the issue of bad information a solvable problem? Um, it seems like, you know, if you looked at the historical pathway that you traced through your whole book, it seems like we've always dealt with this, right? Um, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say sometimes more than others. I mean, um, things write themselves out, and that's how democracy can, can stabilize. And so um, one of the things that I thought is, well, right now we're in this information disruption. Right now, people don't know how to evaluate the sources they're seeing online. The same thing happened in the Middle Ages. So one question is, will people develop the, the media literacy rapidly enough to sort out all of the garbage out there and to find and hold on to truth quickly enough before these autocrats are able to tear everything down? So there's a little bit of a race that way. And um, I never knew about courses called media literacy until recently. It wasn't a thing. It was in ancient times in the late 70s and 80s when I was in college. And, um, and I'm, when I, the more I look at what that discipline is, it's obviously trying to catch the population up to this disruption that we're in. And it, it ended up happening with the, with the, um, the printing press. So before... Law school, I taught English at the college and university level, and that was before really the internet and social media. And what we taught students how to do was evaluate sources, but the sources were all published. They were written. It was either magazines or newspapers or books, and we taught students how to evaluate which sources were reliable, and it was a whole lot simpler then. And what students and consumers of news need now is so much more. They need a whole new reorientation in education. Here's something we can think about, right? So like we rely on the government, for example, to provide us protections from some things, right? So they regulate like the food that we eat so that the food doesn't have toxins in it. And they regulate the rules of the road and those kinds of things. So is that a solution to the problem of bad information then? Is that something the government should be tackling? Well, we have a First Amendment. And so, um, and it will never be illegal in a country with a First Amendment to lie. And so- Ultimately, I think that um, I think that the government can help by funding better education, um, finding ways for the government to communicate more effectively with the citizens. And I think the real solutions have to come from education and perhaps businesses and, and the community. Yeah. So businesses, would that be like the platforms themselves or would that be businesses underwriting a charitable information campaigns? I don't know. Well, actually, I think, um, I'm not sure I would rely on businesses um, to take the initiative, but businesses will respond to pressure campaigns. And um, boycotting businesses that give money to bad actors. But ultimately, I think the kinds of pressure campaigns that can work on businesses really have to originate in the community. And, um, and the businesses will do what's economic, what's in their economic best interest. That's just what they will do. And you do have businesses out there that are environmentally conscious, and they will put forward the fact that they are 
doing these kinds of things to help the environment or to help whatever. Um, but they do that because that's, that's what their customers want. And so I do think um, public pressure campaigns can work, but I think real, all of that has to originate in the community. I think that's where real change has to happen. I mean, democracy literally means rule by the people. So if, de if democracy is going to survive, it will be because enough citizens step forward. Putting too much power in the hands of the government can also be misused because other people can seize control of the government. The community is really where, um, where the education has to happen um, and where activism has to happen. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and I'm going to put a link to the book in the show notes and also put a link to that Harvard resource on scientific racism for people as well. Um, so Terry Canfield, thank you so much for visiting us with, with us this week. And thank you for having me. Thanks for getting Unspun with me this week. Unspun is a production of me, Amanda Sturgill, and is a proud member of the MSW Media family of podcasts. Send me your thoughts and ideas about trickery in the news on Gmail at theunspunpodcast at gmail.com. I even write back. And find this episode's show notes and more information at theunspunpodcast.substack.com. Want to learn more and get smarter? Check out my book, Detecting Deception, Tools to Fight Fake News, which is available on Amazon or your favorite online bookseller. And until next time, stay sharp, everyone.